Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And on the show today, it's just me. I'm going to be sharing a lot of my tips and tricks and strategies, the lessons that I've learned from my first few seasons elk hunting. I am not the most experienced elk hunter by any means, but there are so many things that I have learned from being out there in that short amount of time. I try to gather a lot of information, learn what to do right, what not to do the next time, um, things to change and tweak to make myself more successful and a better hunter and outdoorsman in the future. So I hope that this is beneficial to you guys. If you're looking at getting on your first ever elk hunt, there's going to be a lot of things that I share about that hopefully you can take away and help yourselves be better outdoorsmen and women as well. So let's jump into it. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And on the show today, it's just me. I'm going to be sharing all about Western hunting, my experiences so far, as well as what my plans are for this upcoming season. And I'm pretty excited about it because there's going to be a lot of good hunts um, that I'm involved in this year. But more than that, I've learned so much. I mean, I've been out to Colorado, let's see, three or four years now. And I've had some successes, some failures, and I have learned a ton. Now, I'll, I'll start out by saying this. When I first got into it, I had an amazing group of guys that were able to um, kind of train me in, based off of all of their experience, years and years of chasing after elk and mule deer and multiple other species out in Colorado. And so the unit that I got brought to, I guess, for the first time, um, is a spot that they had already had success in. And it wasn't immediate. They had a lot of years where they went without seeing a ton of animals. But once they found them, it is, it's been very consistent success out there. I mean, multiple bulls every year, some cows, depending on how many people have cow tags. But like this past year, they got, they saw around 1500 elk throughout the nine day season. And that's not even counting the few days scouting before. So I'm going to break it down, like start to finish what elk hunting looks like for us. But before I get fully into that, I'm going to share with you, I've got some cool hunts coming up. I'm going to be going back out to Colorado. Uh, it's going to be for second rifle season. And I'm hoping to get out to a state this year with my bow. And it might just be an over the counter uh, unit that I get into, um, there's a ton of different places all around the country where you can go and hunt for fairly inexpensive. I mean, it's going to be several hundred dollars, but you can actually get out there and have success, find elk, um, at the very least have an amazing vacation out in the woods or on the mountains. And so I'm hoping to get into a unit or a state with open units with my bow. It's not going to be Colorado, I don't think. Um, but I will be accompanying a good friend, Linnea, on a an archery mule deer hunt, so I'm pretty pumped about that. I have never been a part of an archery hunt um, for big game out west, and that's going to be a whole new adventure all in itself. So we're going to kind of learn that together. I'm going to try to tr like cross over from rifle hunting and and bring some of the skills and strategies that I've used for chasing after elk in the mountains of Colorado to her mule deer hunt. And number one being glassing. I mean, we're going to do a ton of glassing. I've got a new spotting scope and I'll get into some of those details here throughout the episode of what I'm using and, and what that's going to look like 
this fall when I head out there. So my big hunt, I mean, I, I've been gone now for two years from my main elk camp with, uh, with the guys for second rifle season. And so this is going to be my first year back in, in several, and I cannot wait. Like I said, they always have success out there. Not everybody. It's a huge group. I mean, upwards of 15 to 20 people some years, but that being said, the more people you have out there, the more eyes you have glassing, uh, the easier it's going to be to find the elk. And some of the guys, they, they drive around on the roads, right? It's like two track roads where you really need a four wheeler or a side by side, or you're going to be hiking a lot. And one of the number one strategies that I was taught when I first got out there, which was totally different from whitetail hunting, um, was don't go anywhere in the dark. So like when they're driving the roads on the side-by-side and the four-wheelers, they're doing it after legal shooting light starts for the day. And that seemed very odd to me. In my mind, I'm like, all right, we're going to get back in somewhere where the elk are. We're going we're gonna to get set up. And then we're going to push closer if we have to. But typically when I go out with my bow, I'm out there an hour before legal shooting light starts. I let the woods kind of settle down. I get set up in my stand and that's with bow or rifle. And for them, the whole idea, I mean, it's probably 45 minute four wheeler ride from our base camp to where we do a good amount of hunting and where we've had the most success. And so the whole concept behind it is if you're going in the dark, you might be missing miles and miles of good glassable country where there could be elk. And I, I experienced that firsthand my first year hunting, I think it was opening day and we were driving on this two track on a ridge line, trying to head back to this kind of honey hole that they've, they've pinned down. And there were cows coming down an opposing, um, hillside and they were dropping into the valley below. And I was like, oh man, this is, this is amazing. Now my buddy, Sean, his daughter, Addie, she had a cow tag. And so we got, we got set up and we were watching and if, if we had gone in during the dark or at night, we would have never seen these elk or known that they were using that specific area. Um, and so that has been a rule that we've lived by now for, I guess, every time I've gone out there hunting. Um, so moving on from that, the, the different strategies include driving around, basically staying on the roads, glassing from the two tracks up on the on the ridge lines, getting to good vantage points and checking out different valleys and bowls and, and hillsides. And there's people who just go back to camp every night. They go back to the base camp where we've got all the four wheelers, side by sides, toy haulers, campers. I mean, it, it's a big camp. They set up a couple amazing wall tents. And I'll tell you this right now, no matter what strategy you use to have a base camp, set up somewhere where you can go back if you need to, you know, dry out your clothes, if you need to get a warm meal, if you need to gather water or just have a good fire to sit around at night is a game changer. There's a lot of people who right out of the gate want to get into, um, you know, the whole backpacking, the lightweight, going in as light as possible, staying out there for as long as possible, but it can really take a toll. The amount of days that you could spend out there without seeing an animal Um, it gets very monotonous glassing the same hillsides, picking apart different fingers of trees or meadows where they might come out, uh, that can get overwhelming in a hurry, especially if it's something that you've never done before. And so to have that base camp to go back to and enjoy and just kind of recalibrate, figure out a new game plan or strategy for the days to come is amazing. So there's a lot of guys that don't ever do a spike camp or get farther back into the back country. Now, where our base camp is, it's in elk country. So it's not uncommon to see mule deer, elk. We've seen badgers, bear, turkey, all within sight of our camp. Like we've got a big wall tent set up as a mess hall. And so typically we've got folding tables out there for food and and paperware and cutlery and all of that stuff. There's a blackstone grill in there that one serves to heat the tent but then also is a great cooking surface. So why don't I dive into that real quick? The, the strategy for food is kind of awesome. 
And what that is, is pre-making good meals. And so whether it's spaghetti or lasagna or, you know, just bringing out eggs and bacon and things like that. And then uh, we, we freeze it in one gallon bags. And so each person will uh, either have their wife or they'll make it themselves. They'll make several of those, like two or three meals. And then each night someone else is in charge of cooking. And so it's just a matter of cutting open the, the freezer bags, emptying all of the contents out onto the Blackstone, and then cooking a homemade meal. Good. It's not freeze-dried. You know, you're not having to rehydrate it. You're not having to come up with something on the spot. You already have it done. So all it is is putting it on that Blackstone, heating it up, and you're ready to go. And so we've done everything from, like, stir-fry uh, teriyaki chicken and rice, steaks, burgers, Philly cheese steaks, like I said, spaghetti and lasagna. And it really is awesome to come back, especially when you are successful out there. You come back after a full day of gutting or quartering and boning an elk, packing it back out, sometimes four miles up, up a hill, because most of the spots that we park at are on ridge lines, and so everything you're hunting is down lower than where you park. So once you have a full pack of meat, and like if you get a bull, the whole head and antlers, trying to pack that back up to have an easy warm meal to come back to is amazing. Now, as far as food goes, when we're actually out there hunting, we've we've done a little bit of everything. I mean, bringing jerky. My buddy Sean absolutely loves bringing a log of summer sausage and some rich crackers out there. That's like his go-to. And there's been a couple times where we've joked with people like, Hey, you can come out, we'll get you on a bull, but you got to carry the crackers. And it's just kind of a fun thing that we do. Um, where if it's a new hunter, they carry the crackers in and, and then it's a victory deal at the end. You know, you pull out the crackers, half of them are probably smashed. Some of them might not be, but you get to eat summer sausage and everything before or after you finish taking care of the animal and getting it loaded into packs. Now, another strategy, which probably half of the people do out there, including myself, is spike camping. And so what we'll do is we'll get up on those same ridge lines, drive back to a spot where we know the elk like to hang out, and they'll, they'll come feed out in these meadows or on these hillsides in the mornings. Um, sometimes they'll bed there all day long and then feed again in the evenings. And so what we'll do is we'll actually get out to a spot park or have people drop us off at the end of a road and then we actually dive down in to these hot spots that we that we've located over the years and that has proven to be an amazing strategy now we're not hunting the rut typically it's second rifle season you know archery has been done for quite a while there's been a whole nother rifle season in between us muzzleloaders over and so there's been a lot of hunting pressure but we've seen that the elk are still bugling out there now, the strategy that they use is not calling at all. It's sneaking in on them. You know, say, say there's a ridgeline running north-south, and there's elk on an opposing ridgeline or hillside to the west. We will kind of skirt the ridgeline on the east side so that we can't be seen. The wind is going to be broken up a little bit, and we always try to approach from downwind. You know, the elk have phenomenal noses. I've seen deer wind people at a couple hundred yards. Typically it's closer around 175 and under with elk. You might be talking about 75 noses, you know, 150 sets of, or 150 ears and eyes that could pick you out. And so we try to stay out of sight, out of the line of smell, stay super quiet heading in there, but the wind shift, the thermal shift. And so Even if you have what seems like a bulletproof game plan, the wind can be your enemy in a hurry. And I got to notice that firsthand. I mean, we, my first ever successful hunt, my buddy Sean and I, we decided to get in there early. And so we got out there and it's light. We're, we're hiking in and we get to this spot that has been glassed a thousand times before by guys from this group. And we were probably, gosh, I don't know, a mile and a half back. And we're up on this point and we're glassing and glassing. And no matter how much you think you're going to be able to see out there, 
because these elk are huge, there's a lot of them, they can just appear out of nowhere. I'm talking like you'll be picking apart a spot and not see a single thing, and it's pretty wide open in some spots, and then all of a sudden you'll see one, and it might be an ear flick or it might be a tail or just the hoof of one walking through. Um, You might see a, a mule deer turn its head, and you'll see just catch the antlers. And as soon as you see one, all of a sudden, like, the hillside comes alive. And these animals might have been there the whole time. They may have been in plain sight. But until you actually, like, figure out or catch your first one moving, it just seems like nothing's there. And then as soon as you do, you start looking harder, and you take your time more. And you might pick out a whole herd of elk that has been sitting there bedding or feeding that you just didn't see. So yeah, like once you pick up your first one, it just seems easier and easier after that. And so it can be discouraging glassing for so long in country that you think there's got to be animals in. But I'm telling you right now, just take your time. And even if you think you've picked an area apart, go over it one more time before you pick up and move to a new spot. So we were up on this point and we're glassing and I was looking in the same direction that Sean was and I didn't see a single thing. And he's like, dude, there's a whole herd of elk over there. And I'm like, where? And he points it out to me and it still took me 45 seconds to find my first one. And then once I did the whole hillside and opposing finger just came alive. There were elk everywhere. Now it was really cool because we saw a big bull and he was standing all the way out, literally on top of a straight cliff wall. And he was just standing there peering out over into this valley below him. And there's cows all over. So we started making a play and we are working down this, this finger. Well, the wind had shifted and he's like, dude, we got to get, we got to get on the other side of this ridge line away from them and we can't let them smell us. And I don't believe it was that that specific instance, but we had another instance during that week where they did. I mean, we were probably 750 to 800 yards away and they just picked us off. I mean, it was like the wind had hit our backs. And as soon as you feel that there's nothing you can do. It's not like, oh man, we're going to, we're going to tuck down. We're going to cover ourselves in sagebrush or, you know, pine needles or whatever. Once your, once your wind is out there, it's out there. And if it's going their direction, well, you're in trouble. And so on this specific hunt, luckily they didn't, they didn't bust. They didn't take off. Uh, we started working towards them. And again, we got on the backside of the ridgeline we were on so they couldn't see us. Our sound and our smell should have been good. And we start working towards them. Now we're coming up on a big cedar thicket. And the, the elk were hundreds of yards away from the cedar thicket. What we didn't account for is that there were more elk in that cedar. And so we start walking and you can smell it. If you've never smelled elk before, it is unmistakable. Like you will recognize that smell for the rest of your life when you're out in the woods. And we got into it and you could just smell the musky. I don't even know how to describe it. It's a very potent smell. And so we start walking and we're, we're really taking our time going slow and it didn't matter because there were elk in there with us and we didn't realize it until the ground literally started shaking as if we were in a stampede because I mean, we kind of were and we, we pop out really quick cause now we know all of these elk have busted us and they're working down towards the other one. So we get out to an uh, vantage point get set up with, we were using Primo's trigger sticks. I think he had, a monopod, I had a bipod, and so we got set up with our rifles, and we were watching, and all of these elk busted out of the cedars straight towards the herd that we were going after and the big bull that we were going after, and they pushed them down into this really nasty canyon, and I'm thinking, dude, there's no way, one, that we're going to get a shot, but two, that we're going to be able to recover it from down there. And so the first herd that we had spotted goes down in this canyon. We watch all of these other elk heading out onto the finger that we were heading towards. And they dropped down in the canyon, and I was watching through my scope one after the next. I mean, I had probably a 400-yard shot, but they were moving, 
and they were all cows and we're just watching. And then all of a sudden a spike would pop up and they all went down and we thought for sure, like we just blew it. They're all going to pop up on the next hillside way too far and through a Canyon that we can't cross. And we're not going to be able to get a shot or like I said, recover them. Well, what actually happened is when that second herd that spooked out of the cedar trees went down, it pushed the first herd back up onto the same hillside that they were on to start with. And so one at a time, these cows were walking and they had run up the hill, got up on this finger, uh, this ridge line on top of this finger, and they started walking. And it was kind of mixed cedar trees, but pretty open. And the elk kept going through this like three foot wide gap in between two cedar trees. And then they were in the open for probably 50 plus yards. And one at a time, they were cows, cow, 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 probably, gosh, several dozen cows popped out. And I hear Sean say, the next one coming through is a bull. If you want him, you can take him. He's legal. And so I got settled in. I'm watching. I see the cow. And then I see the head pop out from in between these cedars. And it's a bull. And I'm like, oh, dude, game on. And he stepped out got about 10 yards from the cedars, wide open. Now he was quartering to me pretty hard, but it was a 300 yard shot, a shot that I'm very comfortable taking, a shot that I've practiced a ton of times. And that's one thing that I would recommend to anybody going out there for the first time is make sure that you are practicing at any shot that you're gonna take out in the field. And so if if your goal is to shoot 500 yards when you're out in the field, be practicing at that. And if an elk steps out at 750 and you haven't taken that shot and you're not comfortable, it's not worth pulling the trigger and wounding an animal, not finding it. Like that can ruin your experience in a hurry. And so this was a shot that I had taken multiple times, super comfortable, very tight groups at that distance. And it was quartering toward me very hard. So I slipped it right inside its front right shoulder and pulled the trigger. And as soon as I did, I heard whack. I mean, an unmistakable, unmistakable, whatever, however you say that sound where it's just like it hits a chest cavity. And right then I knew I had made a good shot. Sean said the same thing. He's like, great shot. It sounded great. It looked great. Um, it looked like you put it right where you needed to, but this elk just stayed there. It just kept standing up. So I reloaded quick and got back on it. And right as I was about to pull the trigger a second time, because it didn't even take a single step, a cow comes up from behind it, runs into it, like into the butt of it and pushes it off. So we drop down, we're heading over to where uh, it was standing when I took the shot and I look over and this thing is standing directly to our right, like a hundred yards. And it's standing there staring at us. And Sean's like, we need to, we need to put this thing down right now. So we both got on the, on the tripods or the shooting sticks and three, two, one, pulled the trigger and it dropped in its tracks. And so that was amazing. Now we ended up walking over to it. It was dead. We go, I go back over because there wasn't any blood trail behind it. And I'm like, that's odd. So I walk over to where I had first shot and there wasn't a single drop of blood. There's a little bit of fur, but no blood at all. And so I was very thankful that, that we were able to see it once we got down there and get a second, a follow-up shot. Now, that leads me to another point. With elk, with big game species out in this type of country, mule deer, elk, moose, mountain goat, bighorn, uh, even white-tailed deer, Sean had taught me, and all the guys in the group concurred with his advice, is that if it's on its feet, you continue to shoot. And that doesn't mean you just Swiss cheese this animal like on a dead sprint or whatever. Like you still try to make good shots, but once you make that initial shot, if it doesn't go down, you you shoot again because you don't want that thing in that case running with no blood trail and there's so much fat, there's so much hide on these things that sometimes they won't. They won't bleed a ton. Even though I was shooting a 338 Win Mag at the time, a very large bullet. And in my mind, it would have just been pouring out blood and it just wasn't. And so we get over there, the animal's dead. It was an amazing hunt. My first ever elk, it was an awesome six by five. Um, and I, I was super proud of it. So moving on from that point, it came time to clean the animal. 
and we're a couple miles back in at this point. And I want to say like altogether, the hike out was three to four miles, something along those lines, just the, like where it ended up, the route that we had to take to get back. Um, it was a long, long hike. And so we wanted to get as much of the meat free of the bone as we could. Uh, another point to make is that you have to leave evidence of sex on one of the quarters, which means like the ball sack and the penis stayed attached. We, we didn't bone that whole quarter out. Um, I want to say we took some of it, but unless you keep the head and antlers attached to the entire rest of the carcass in Colorado, you have to have evidence of sex attached to one of the quarters. And so we started doing it Well, it was hot this day and the temperatures can change in a hurry out there. So no matter where you go, look at the hot, like record highs and record lows for the time frame you're going to be out there and make sure you have clothing that will match the environment. Like you, you have to be ready for any weather conditions because it can go from below zero at night to fifties, sixties. We saw it go from freezing to 70 in one day and you just have to be ready for the wind or the weather to change that quickly and so it's probably in the 70s at this point when I shoot this animal there's not a ton of cover around and so one thing that came in really handy I keep a first aid kit with me and everybody does that goes out with them I mean that's one of the things I say no matter where you're going who you're going with everybody needs their own fire capabilities and their own first aid kit so I had a first aid kit and I had put two emergency blankets in my first aid kit. Now these are the reflective blankets. They're amazing. They're super thin and they tear easily unless you get the heavier duty ones, which are more bulky and, and a little bit more weight, but I had two of them. And so what worked out perfectly is we took our shooting sticks and set it up with a little bit of paracord and made shade that we could, that we could process behind. And then on the ground, we had another emergency blanket that we use as a clean surface for laying our quarters after we got them off the animal and then for boning them out right there on top of the emergency blanket. And so it keeps the meat clean. It keeps it to the point where, you know, all you have to do is wipe it off, wipe any hair off, and you're basically good to go. And so we did that. And the difference from being in the shade to the direct sunlight was probably a solid 20 degrees, which is a big deal. I mean, if you can hang the meat in a tree, that's amazing. This terrain didn't really offer that. I mean, we had some cedar brush, but not really any big mature cedar trees that we could actually hang quarters in. That's another thing that's that's great for being out there. If you can hang it and let the wind kind of dry and create that create that shell or that film on the outside, that's a great way to keep your meat good um, so that it's not just, you know, rotting and exposed to the elements. So... We get it all taken care of, um, and in fact, his brother and his brother's friend came out and helped us. Now, they, gosh, they saved us because they bombed in. They got to us quick, right towards the end of us processing the meat, and then we packed the entire animal out. If you want to take a cape out, one thing that we were told from a taxidermist after he got his moose is that you want to basically cut a line straight up the spine all the way to the base of the neck and keep keep the hide on the skull and pack the whole thing out that way. I didn't care to do that. Um, you know, full mounts are expensive. European mounts I can do myself. And at that point, I just didn't have the money. Yes, it would have been great. It would have been a lot more work carrying out that extra weight of the cape. But out in the field, we took everything off of the head. I mean, I took all the all the hair off the head, the eyeballs out, detached the lower jaw. And so I lightened my load in that sense a lot better than having to take all that weight back to camp and then to also like just discard it once I got back. And so we pulled the ivories out, which if you didn't know, I want to say that elk are one of three legal means of having real ivory. They each, both cows and bulls, have two ivories in their mouth. And so you can pull those out, make them into jewelry, just hang them on a necklace, um, just keep them in a jar, whatever you want to do. And so that was kind of cool. I did not know that leading up to the hunt. And it was, it was definitely an added bonus, 
um, or added trophy, whatever you want to call. And so I, I kind of, I put them all on a lanyard with my turkey spurs, like little keepsakes, I guess, from each animal. So we got it all packed out back to camp and it was amazing. Um, one of the, so that leads me back to one of the strategies is spike camping, bringing out, you know, a two man tent, if there's two of you and you might be, have tight quarters, but to, to go back into a spot where you know the elk are and you can wake up without having that 45 minute drive. If you know the elk are there the night before, they might be there in the morning and, uh, you can set up, you can set up shade. You can have a little makeshift chair or I bring, it's called an a light chair and it packs down really small, like much smaller than a football. It can, it only has two feet on the bottom of it. So you kind of balance on it while you're sitting. But if you dig your heels in, you can sit very comfortably and it's an amazing glassing, glassing platform, I guess. And the shooting sticks are amazing. Primo shooting sticks. It's something easy. You can use it as like a trekking pole as well, but then you also have the ability to create shade shelter out of it. Um, you can shoot off of it obviously and glassing from it is a game changer instead of lugging out an entire tripod there's plenty of really good ones in fact I actually did bring a second tripod but when you're hiking instead of having to pull your tripod out set it up those trigger sticks you can just rest your binoculars on top of them in glass and have a pretty stable platform where you can see a lot more detail you can see a lot more movement um, just not free handing it uh, I know there's tricks like holding the bill of your hat that gives you a little more stability, but I'm telling you to have sticks to rest it on and almost lean against is a game changer. And then the the same trekking pole or trigger sticks or tripod or whatever you're using out there, it helps when you're packing out the meat. And so you can take the take it, lower it down to where it's about waist level and stick it behind you, like behind your butt, and just rest your pack on top of the shooting sticks or the tripod or the trekking pole and just relieve some weight instead of having to sit down fully on the ground and then stand back up with all that weight. It's just an added bonus to having something like that out there. Now, if you're in really open country or vast landscapes where you're going to be able to see a mile plus, it definitely helps to have a spotting scope. I never had one until this year. And so this year is going to be my first year with my own spotting scope. Typically someone would bring them out in years past, but I got the nicest, newest Vortex spotting scope. It's amazing. I want to say it goes up to 80 power. I should have all this information on hand, but Vortex makes an amazing line of product with clear glass. There's nothing that you can find that's better quality and cheaper than Vortex. I mean, like the combination of price and quality that you get from them. Sure, there's a lot higher end glass out there, that you could spend, you know, several thousand dollars on. But for the money, I'm telling you right now, I swear by them. And I've never, I've never at this point had a partnership, but uh, I will say there might be something in the works. In fact, you might eventually hear some advertising on here. But even long before I was in talks about any type of partnership, I was using Vortex and a lot of those guys out there use the same equipment because it's just high quality and you can't beat the VIP warranty. I mean, it is second to none. So all that to say, getting out there, getting after the elk, sometimes you have to put in the miles. It doesn't often happen where it's right off the trail. Although we've seen the gut piles, we've helped people that have gotten animals right on the two track, uh, getting out off the trail is an amazing way to find animals. And I will say they do hang out right below the trails. I, this is, this is probably one of the number one things that I've taken away. And I don't know if it was told to me or if I learned it on my own animals. I, I don't know what it is. It's like being right next to the trail, but out of sight of the trail is something that they do so well. And I've now seen it multiple times where unless you get off of the trail and walk out to a finger and glass below the trail, a lot of these trails are on ridge lines, and the elk can tuck down 50 yards, 100 yards, 200 yards below the trail, but because of the elevation change, you can't actually see, and you can't see through the cedars or the scrub oak that is right under the trail. So I'll tell you this. If you have an opportunity, if there's switchbacks, always be glassing underneath the next 
chunk of the road or glassing back underneath the chunk of the road that you were just on. Or if you have to hike out 200 yards on a finger and then turn around and glass, you will find a lot of animals that way. At least I have. I mean, I, I'll say probably hmm, at least 50% of the time. Some, some weeks it's up to 80, 90% of the time you can find animals by turning around and glassing. And it's not every time that you do it, but I'm saying like throughout the week at one point point or another, we have found animals by doing that. And so it's an amazing strategy, an amazing thing that a lot of people overlook. They just drive or they hike and they're like, oh man, I'm up here. There's nothing right off the trail right next to me. I've seen big bulls. I've seen big bucks. I've seen does and cows and everything in between that have been hanging out right underneath the trail. As far as, as spike camping goes, you want to be far enough in to where you're not being hit by other hunting pressure. And you want to be close enough to where you can get back for supplies, get back to your vehicle. Um, and so typically we're doing it like one to five miles is a pretty good range. And in country like that, if you've got a side-by-side parked up on a, on a ridgeline, you could see that thing from miles away if you're using your glasses or if you're using your glass or your spotting scope, whatever um, you're using as optics, you can see it and have a good point of reference for how you're getting back, map out a trail, look at, look at the topographical maps, whether you're on um, Go Hunt or you're on Onyx or any other mapping software. You can typically find a decent spot, and when you're looking back up, you can see any rim rock that's going to prevent you the next time you drop in from being able to make it to the destination that you want to hunt. So that that same year, my first year out there, before I got the bull, we we had known about elk being in this back area, and it was several mile hike. And at this particular spot, we were actually able to park down near this gate by a water hole, and it was about 100 yards from private land. But we we stayed on public, and we got up to this vantage point, and we found... We found, I would say, around 75 elk and multiple big shooter bulls. And we spotted them right away the first day that we got out. We got our tent set up. We got everything ready to go, lightened our gear, and then we went after these elk. Now, always be mindful of are you like are you going to be able to get the elk back out? Because you might be able to make a shot, but if it's in a difficult situation in a bad spot topographically like you don't want to set yourself up for having a dead animal and having no plan or no way to get it back out and so we actually started down this little chute we were in scrub oak we were pretty concealed and then we would just pop out to little openings here and there to get eyes on them again and we were closing the distance closing the distance and they were they were about 100 yards in on a different bordering private land property and we were probably, I would say, four to 500 yards away from these elk. Now, all three of us, myself, my buddy Sean, and his daughter Addie, had all been comfortable shooting at that distance. We found one giant bull. I mean, it was, you could tell looking at it, it was a totally different color than all the other ones. It, the body size was huge, and they were all just bedded down in the middle of the day. And we started making this play, and there were spots that, we were going down the hill towards them and they were, or we were sliding down the hill. And it was like you slid until you hit some scrub oak or you hit a rock or something. And we ended up backing out of that hunt. Although we were basically within range of these elk, we couldn't think of a good way that we were going to be able to get them back up this hill because it had rained recently. There was a lot of water, a lot of mud on this hillside. And we, we just didn't feel comfortable taking a shot and then not being able to recover the animal and getting the meat out before it got too warm and, and spoiled the meat. And so we ended up backing out of that hunt, even though there were more than enough legal bulls for each of us to get a shot, some really, really nice, like high quality. And again, this is an over-the-counter unit, public land. Like I just bought a tag right before going out, didn't have to apply for anything, didn't have to draw anything. 
And so, um, we, we had that opportunity, but again, we just couldn't recover the animal. So we get back up to the top. Um, we were hanging out for the day and we continued to hike in glass and we ended up seeing another bull and we were about out of daylight and it was probably 600 yards away, 700 yards away in some thick stuff, but we could see the antlers sticking up. And so we set up camp or we, we went back to camp, made some food. Uh, we did mountain house that night. And then my wife actually makes these thousand calorie bars and they're amazing. They've got a little bit of everything in them, but it's a great trail snack. You can pack a bunch of them in, cut them into little like two by two or three by three squares, eat one here and there. And it really does seem to fill me up pretty good to where that's all I eat most of the time I'm out there. You know, I'm not necessarily always making uh, breakfast or lunch. Typically we make a good dinner every time, but throughout the day, just having a, a good snack that tastes well can really refuel you, recharge you and get you ready to go back out. So we, um, we ended up seeing that, that big bull, uh, didn't make a play on it. Thought we could try to find it again the next morning. We never did. Ended up seeing more elk and getting within 400 yards of them, but they never stopped and gave us a shot. We watched them uh, for quite a while. We kept moving in, trying to get closer and make a play on them. And some private land people uh, came onto public and actually basically pushed them back onto private land, which was very unfortunate, but had lots of clear, clear sight opportunities at them, but they were moving the whole time. And none, none of us felt comfortable taking that shot when they were at either a full sprint or a trot as they crossed this opening in front of us. And so that hunt, I think we stayed out there two or three nights and then we went back to camp, uh, recharged and got a new game plan for a different area later on. We did run into some people out there, um, that had, they had a, an awesome camp set up and we actually walked through their camp at one point. Uh, they had spike camped the day before we got out there. They had shot a good bull and packed it out, but they had some issues with bears. They had a juvenile bear that got into camp, tore up one of their tents, tore into some of their packs. And so when we had walked through their camp, we could see a lot of stuff was tore up, but most of it was up in trees because it had happened the night before. And so before they left camp that day, for the hunt, they actually hung everything high up in a tree to where they weren't going to have any more issues. We ran into them later on and we talked to them. They said, they said that as they were packing out that bull elk, this bear was actually on the trail following them. And they said it was a couple hundred yards away. They took a couple warning shots at it to scare it off. Um, but they didn't want to kill it. And I think one of them may have had a bear tag, but it was a smaller bear and they just didn't want to shoot it. And so they were like, dude, it was on face, even shooting at the ground a couple feet in front of it. It just kept coming. It kept following us. And then eventually they got out of sight, got back to where they could head back to the main camp and um, didn't ever have an encounter with it again. But we all had bear tags. That's another amazing thing about out in Colorado is you can get over the counter bear tags for a lot of these units. And they're pretty cheap. I mean, I'm talking like a hundred bucks for a non-resident to go out there. You can buy a bear tag. Some of them are unlimited over the counter. Some of them are limited, but some of the units that we hunt are unlimited. And so you can buy one the day before you go out elk hunting and you can have a backup bear tag in your pocket just in case you have a cool encounter. And they have, they've killed several good bears out there. So that is kind of the breakdown like we do spike camping we do base camp and sometimes a mix of both uh, I will say that we'll take turns going to some of the honey holes uh, there are spots where me and a couple other guys go that nobody else does and so we've really learned to pick those areas apart and I'm really hoping that we drop in because both of my bulls were within the same area that I've killed now and I think if we could get back in there and do a good good spike camp to where we don't have as far to travel every day. We could be like right in the mix of a lot of good elk and mule deer country. Um, uh, this unit typically takes one or two points to draw for mule deer. And so I, I drew one year and was successful. It was my second year hunting. I drew one year and did uh, a mule deer and a bull elk, 
a buck mule deer and a bull elk and was able to complete both of them on the same day actually uh, we hunted hard for muleys didn't have any opportunities until the same day i shot my bull we packed it out and then on the drive back actually everybody had stopped and told me that they had just seen a big buck with a bunch of does so i got out got my rifle uncased loaded it up and i went after and right before Right before legal shooting light ended, I was able to fill my second tag of the day and second tag of the season. So that was pretty exciting. Now, um, going toward going back to like transportation out there, like I said, we put a lot of miles. There's days that we put a hundred plus miles on the four wheelers or side by sides. There's days where we put dozens of miles on foot and you, you kind of have to plan for both. If you want to just do on foot, I we ran into a guy one day when we were glassing, and he had walked about four miles in, and there was a road that he could have been on or driven on, but instead he walked through some really nasty country, and we came across him as he was just walking up the path as we were hunting, and he didn't see us. Uh, we popped out. We're like, hey, man, how's it going? He's like, holy crap, dude. I had no idea anybody was back here. This was a trek to get back here. And it was his first time, but he had a truck. He didn't have the capabilities of getting on some of these trails that the four-wheelers and side-by-sides did. So if you have that at your disposal, I would highly recommend using it. I mean, there are so many places that you can cut the distance by 50 miles just by getting on a side-by-side or on a four-wheeler. And I know that's not for everybody, but when it comes to rifle hunting, I'm telling you, it is a great strategy to use. And even I'm sure it's the same way for bow hunting. Like if I could get an archery tag for this unit, I would definitely be back in there on a side by side and then drop in the last mile to four miles on foot, set up camp and then hunt them hard that way. And so having the right transportation to be able to get to these places, you can make your life a whole lot easier and again not everybody can do it i know there's places that you can rent them um and the other issue is like having a backup plan it i i don't recommend anybody going and doing this for their first or second hunt completely by themselves to have another person and if you're going to be on a four-wheeler have a backup four-wheeler you know have somebody else if you and another buddy or a couple people go out we have had plenty of four-wheelers break down over the years, and I've been towed back more than once. You know, I'm, I'm typically, because I don't have my own right now, I'm using one that they let me use, and I typically get put on the roughest riding, oldest one that has issues. And so we've been broken down before and had to get towed back with tow straps all the way back to camp, and that's 10 more stories all in themselves. But to have transportation, have a backup plan this past year, me and some buddies went to a new unit. We had scouted it online a bunch. I had never been there in person, but we got out there two days before season. Um, and that's another thing that I would recommend, trying to get out there ahead of time. E-scouting does a ton, but if you can get boots on the ground before your hunt actually starts or the first day of your hunt, just dedicate it to scouting and really trying to figure out the area, that can be a game changer. And so we went out to this new unit. I brought three new people that had never elk hunted before and then a buddy who had with his bow quite a bit and we got back there we only had we had a side-by-side a dirt bike and an e-bike and luckily all the roads that we drove on you could do it with a truck um, but the side-by-side is just easier you can carry all your gear it's easier getting in and out um, the fuel or the miles per gallon you get on them is way better and so one day we had a belt break and we actually had to tow the side-by-side up and it's a nice Polaris Ranger uh, six-seater side-by-side and we just had a belt snap on it. Again, having the backup, having the extra equipment, we had an extra belt for it. We set up, we, we popped the bed up, we got a new belt on it so it ran fine the whole rest of the time. But there's always things that you're going to encounter that you can either learn the hard way or be prepared to take care of them on the front end and so having backup everything i mean one of the guys brought a backup rifle having backup binoculars or boots and so even if you're in the backcountry spike camping if you have to hike back out three miles or 
um, recite your rifle in if it drops and you think something may have gotten knocked loose to, to be able to tackle those challenges head on and be prepared for them on the front end is always a good idea. And so that is, I mean, that's a, it seems like a brief, I can't believe I've been sitting here talking by myself for this long, but there are so many more details that we could go into with tips and tricks and strategies of how, how to get on these animals and how to find good spots, the equipment to use. Um, you know, you might like external frames, you might like internal frames, you might like a meat shelf, you might like a meat strap. That's what I use. There's not an actual hard shelf underneath my pack. It's just a strap that pulls out from where a rain fly would be and you can wrap up the meat that way. Um, there are so many different things and there's no one right way to do it. There's a lot of right ways to do it. There's some wrong ways to do it though. And hopefully, um, you guys can go out there prepared, ready to tackle any, any type of challenges that come your way, any obstacles that you face, um, you know, whether it's gear, whether it's, uh, steep terrain, like just be prepared, do your research, watch a lot of videos, listen to a lot of podcasts and listen to people who have done it before. I am by no means the most experienced person out there. Not, not even close, but I will say there's a lot of stuff that I've learned over the few years that I've been elk hunting that I hope is going to be useful to you guys after hearing this podcast and do your research on the units that you go out and hunt in, you know, see what the draw odds are on it. See what the success rates are on it and just try to set yourself up for success before ever getting your feet on the ground in the areas you're hunting. So hopefully all of that was helpful. I really appreciate you guys, your, your support listening and there's going to be a lot more of these to come. Hopefully we get a lot more very experienced hunters on talking about their tips and tricks and strategies. Hopefully I get a bunch of people on that are brand new to it and have just learned a lot on their first hunt or hear what they're doing in preparation for their first hunt. And so I appreciate it. That's all I got for you. And that is going to wrap it up for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I had so much fun just sharing information and sharing my experiences and the lessons that I've learned so far as an elk hunter. And I really hope that you guys can walk away using a lot of this stuff to better yourselves, to prepare for your first, second, third, whatever hunt this is for you going out west. I'm telling you, if, if I could tell you one thing to walk away with is look underneath road systems or trails or two tracks or whatever because they do there's something about it they'll tuck up underneath and they think they're safe they'll hear people going by all day and not move but if you can get out to a vantage point where you can look back underneath there's animals there and you're not going to find them every time but even if it's one or two times throughout the season if it creates a single opportunity for you it will be worth you trying that strategy out. So hopefully you guys have been drawing tags. Hopefully you're planning for a hunt this fall. Until next time though, get out there and chase a new adventure.